Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And of course, once again, this is the podcast, not only about medicine, but being yourself, about good health, about wellness, about meeting interesting people throughout society that contribute to make us just better people in general. So there's no one better fitting to be on this podcast than my guest today. Uh, I'll mention your name once, but you're going to hear much more about it during my introduction. It's going to be Dr. Kate Merriweather. Now, there's special things about this podcast, everyone. I want to announce that I have another podcast coming out. And this podcast is called Beyond the Pearls. You can't see me make the hand gesture, but I just did it. This is the Beyond the Pearls hand gesture. And Beyond the Pearls is all about medicine. I'm going to really dive deep. It's for anyone who just loves medicine. And we're going to be reading cases from my book series, Beyond the Pearls. And what makes this very special is that like in the comic book world, sometimes there's crossovers where one superhero will be in two different comic books. Well, think of Dr. Kate Merriweather as a superhero. And she's going to be on the Dr. Raj podcast today as a setup for the crossover when she's going to be my lead guest in the Beyond the Pearls podcast. So let me talk about Dr. Merriweather. So first off, I have the honor to know her since she was a medical student at Michigan State University. And many mentors and doctors always tell their students that I want you to be better than me when you finish your training. And some do, but you know, it's hard. But I would say that Kate definitely went above and beyond expectations. I'm so proud of her. And we'll talk more about where she came from in a second, but I told her to give me some of her highlights. And by the way, Kate is not only a doctor, she's an amazing surgeon. I just want to throw it out there. She's OB-GYN trained. She focuses on female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, which is what are going to be the, the, the talks today. But here were some of her accomplishments. And I know that Kate was being generous uh, because her first bullet point was, co-editor of the first edition of Beyond the Pearls OB-GYN book and speaker on my podcast. So Kate always knows how to put like, build up my ego right there. <laughs> she did. Uh, she was a wonderful uh, volume editor along with one of her uh, great colleagues, you know, Joey England, when we talk about the, uh, our book. But to Kate herself, she's a leader of a national team on a systematic review on the uterine preservation in pelvic organ prolapse surgery. And you know, this definitely made her a world expert. I love having world experts on my podcast in the evidence of uterine preservation um, on uh, for women with prolapse. She's also the research chair of Society of Gynecologic Surgeries. And she's been doing this since 2019. And she led this National Society busy research engines in all their production of evidence-based publications and excellent gynecological care in women. 
and they had the systematic review of groups, the Collaborative for Research in Pelvic Surgery uh, Consortium, and the Fellows Pelvic Research Network. So a lot of things there. And the last thing she put down here for me to mention was she led the worldwide team to produce the joint AUGS slash IUGA document on how surgery for pelvic organ prolapse is defined, what procedures are termed, and what sets the standards for the world in this terminology. So with that being said, Kate, Dr. Merriweather, thank you for being here. So excited to be here. Can't tell you. <laughs> uh, so I have so many things uh, I want to ask you. So let's start off with the, the getting to know each other, even though we know each other. So Kate, how is it being raised in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan? Do you have good memories of uh, Grand Rapids? And when did you decide, what did you want to do when you grow up? Gosh, you know, when I was growing up in Michigan, I wanted to be a writer uh, <laughs> when I was a little kid, which won't surprise Raj because he knows me very well. <laughs> and he knows that I love to write and produce the written word. So <laughs> Raj is laughing because he knows this very well about me. But for the listeners out there, I really wanted to be an authoress, um, preferably of novels. But I kind of pivoted and went into medical writing instead, which we'll talk about probably a little later on this podcast. So with this writing, uh, you know, passion you had when you were younger, um, did this kind of led to where you went to college? And what was your major when you were in college? Uh, I really loved science and math. Um, so I was sort of a nerd from the get go. And I uh, got an academic scholarship to go up to Michigan Technological University. And if you don't know where that is, dear listeners, don't feel bad because many people do not know that Houghton Hancock, Michigan, which is way, way, way north in the Upper Peninsula, is host to this wonderful technological university called Michigan Tech. Michigan Tech grads, though, if you're listening out there, way to go. Go Huskies. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic place uh, that trains engineers uh, from all over the country and the world. And I wanted to be a biomedical engineer at one point. It turns out I am now a biomedical engineer, but I just engineer uh, living parts of, of women as opposed to engineering <laughs> machines. So, uh, you know, you never know where life is going to take you. So already we started off, you wanted to be a writer, which is great. Then you went to, had a bioengineering. Was that your major? Was that the major you went into? Biomedical engineering was how I came into college. And then about a year or two in, I met with my wonderful advisor. And I still remember him. He had a big, long beard. So he looked like a real true academician. And he said, you know, how you doing? How's it going in your major? Do you have any uh, changes you want to make? And I said, you know what? I'm bored. Really, bored. really, really bored. And, you know, the machines and the spreadsheets, and they don't thank you at the end of the day, right? You spend all this time crunching the numbers and getting the exploded view of the machine you just worked on, and you get it perfect. And then all that happens is you turn it in and, and someone says, okay, we'll consider it. It's a <laughs> You know, and and so I said, I just don't want that to be my career. I want I want the um, products to sort of turn around and say, oh, thank you, that's much better, uh, and get some <laughs> feedback from from the customer, the consumer, if you will. So um, he said, well, it sounds like you might want to be a doctor, and he <laughs> sort of said it just like that with the question mark at the end. That's and funny. I said, well, I, I do. I love biomedicine and I love that field. So I, yeah, I'll go into pre-med. Let's give it a whirl. What, you know, what could happen? <laughs> so <laughs> and, there I went. So yeah, 
you applied to med school and yay, that's where I actually got a chance to meet you during your, your four years there. And so, <laughs> so let me ask you this. So there's a lot of med students here listening into this. So let's divide your med school years into the, you know, the basic science years, years one and two, then the clinical years. What was uh, the hardest subject for you, Dr. Merriweather, in the first years? Which one gave you like those those nightmares? You know, what I mean, you woke up in the in the cold sweat, you know. Yeah, um, I definitely had a hard time with immunology uh, <sighs> because I I was under the impression in medical school that immunology was like made up, right? Like it was like Santa Claus <laughs> and the Easter Bunny. Like we just think the T cells do this, but we don't really know. And I was like, I'll bet you they're just going to throw all this stuff out and start again in like 10 years. They're going to be like, oh, no, that was all bunk. Like we, we, we didn't really know anything about how the immune system works. I don't know if that's actually been the case, but needless to say, I did not go into immunology as, as a profession because that was the one that, that definitely gave me the hardest time. I don't blame you. You know what, Kate? I, I go to certain lectures and, and the answer to some of the people are, you know, it's the immune system. It, it, it kind of like, I understand. We don't know fully know what's going on yet, but... There's a lot uh, of hand-waving. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So uh, let's go to, you know, your third and fourth year. But uh, a question you can answer throughout, which is, what is one of probably your, your best memories in med school? And what would be your advice in someone, a uh, student just starting uh, to make sure they get the most out of their med school? So that's a two-part question right there. Great. So, uh, you know, of course, uh, the listeners will not be surprised that Raj is part of one of my best memories in med school, which is... <laughs> I knew that I wasn't particularly strong in research. I didn't know a lot about biostatistics. I got a, a fat C in my biostatistics course as an undergrad, and I was like, oh, maybe I should learn a little bit more about how people do quantitative research. So I marched my butt into the Grand Rapids Medical Education and Research Center, or GR Merck, as it was called then. Do I have that right, Raj? Yeah, you have and, it correct. And I, I, I applied for a job as a research intern for my first summer after the first year of med school, um, which was a, like a horrendously underpaid and, you know, they'd probably forgotten about position. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll take a grunt worker to, to write up papers and crunch numbers and things of that nature. Um, and so I don't know why they gave me a job or what qualifications I showed them, but they, but they did. And I was sitting at my desk typing up something and all of a sudden this incredibly enthusiastic resident comes bounding into my office <laughs> and says, I have this research idea about Clostridium difficile infections in the hospital and I really want to get it written up. And that, my, my lovely listeners, was Raj just so I always call this like the pilot light theory, right? Like when you have a person who's kind of a pilot light, someone who's so enthusiastic about something that has a great idea, that has a really wonderful passion for whatever the field is. In this case, it was Raj and research. You can really kind of light your own fire and get into something that you wouldn't have anticipated. And now look at me. I love research. I'm all about it. From from the day that Raj bounded into my office, I was like, wow, if this brings so much joy and interest to people that are as enthusiastic as Raj, maybe I should look into research and, and do some stuff. It turns out that Raj needed a writer, which, <laughs> as I disclosed earlier in this podcast, was my dream. He needed someone to take some data that would just look like boring numbers and turn it into a story, right? And I, I have the ability to do that. That was the sort of stuff that turned my crank. So 
I produced some papers with Raj um, and the rest, as they say, is history. But that was one of my best experiences because uh, it lit my fire, pilot light style, uh, for sort of taking uh, boring facts or boring numbers that you find out and turning them into this story about how we can take care of patients better. So my, well, my story of research, pilot well, light. I mean, and I'm going to add on to that and say that the qualities you had, Kate, are some of the qualities that... I wish every doctor could have when they see a med student, you know, you're responsible, you're timely, you're also enthusiastic, you know, you're inquisitive, you definitely were opinionated in a respectful way. And uh, speaking of pilot lights, you know, when I worked with you, you were the first person to get one of my projects published in a journal that was peer reviewed. It was amazing. Your research got me on the national stage of the American College of Physicians. We won for a case of the year. And, you know, for people, the topic was not just C. diff. It was the role of proton pump inhibitors Mm -hmm. and how people were on proton pump inhibitors would be at a higher risk for this infection. And to this day, that is a key piece of knowledge that I hear quoted all the time. Take them off the PPI if they don't need it. They're not benign drugs. So um, that story brought back awesome memories. And and honestly, it's amazing how my effect on you is vice versa, your effect on me, whether it be the OB-GYN book that you've written for me, which we'll talk about shortly, being the superhero for my new podcast. There's a reason why I gravitate towards you during these things. So I'm going to go back and ask you this question. So what advice do you give a medical student who's in med school or just about to start med school to make sure they maximize their, um, their, their time there? Well, in the line of the pilot light theory, if you see people who apparently really love their jobs and are really enthusiastic about finding things out and learning knowledge and just have that positivity about being in medicine, glom onto them, do projects with them, ask them if you can help them out, ask them if they'll mentor you chances are they're going to love that. They're going to love that enthusiasm coming back from you. And, and you really can maximize your, not just knowledge, but your relationships and your connections in medicine. If you sort of glom onto those enthusiasts, like, like I did with Raj. Aww. So <laughs> med, med school is done and now it's time to choose your pathway. And there are many pathways. There's internal medicine. Yay. There's psychiatry, surgery. How did, uh, how did OB-GYN, was it your experience during your rotations that did it? What, what motivated you to go to OB-GYN? Uh, well, I've always been someone who's very interested in women's issues and, and sort of gender inequity in not just healthcare, but in, in the world. Um, I saw such a different culture in surgery that was going on, on and with men than on and with women. Um, and there were good parts to those culture differences. There were unfortunate parts of those culture differences, but I said, you know, this would be so interesting to go through life as a surgeon, but with the lens of being a female surgeon working on female patients, uh, because I feel like female patients, sometimes they get the shaft in, in uh, some, some of our areas of yes. medicine. Um, so I, I really have enjoyed uh, going on that journey as a woman and for my female patients, and, and that's what sort of drew me into OBGYN. The other really fun thing about OBGYN, for those of you that are listening out there, and, you know, maybe I can steal you away from uh, 
some other wonderful profession, <laughs> is that it's a multidisciplinary specialty, right? You know, there's some primary care elements, there's some in-office procedural elements, there's some longitudinal care elements, there's some emergency care elements, there's definitely a strong surgical element, but also a huge medical element in which you're taking care of sometimes two patients in one body. Um, it's very uh, broad and intricate, and there's a lot of things that you can do deep dives into if you like to sub 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 specialize. Um, so if you're sort of one of those people like, ah, gosh, I can't decide. I like surgery, I like medicine, I like uh, taking care of patients long term, but I also like that sort of the high of emergency care. Consider OBGYN because it's got a little bit of everything for you. You know, I got to tell you, my, my favorite rotation as a medical student had to be OB-GYN, you know, and, and I'm going to ask you something. So I remember, you know, my first time when I was in the delivery room, the emotions for those, those 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 brief moments where the baby's coming out, but it's not coming out, whether it's breach or trapped in the canal, mom's not doing well, vitals aren't looking good. And for one split moment, you're like, wait a minute, there could be a lot of death in this room. There could be a dead baby, a dead mom, dad's outside. It, it, it is, it's, it's very emotional. Like, I mean, you've been doing this for a while and thinking back to your residency, do you ever get used to it? Is every time just as that feeling of, oh my God, life is coming out, but it may not come out. Do you ever get used to it being OB-GYN? Well, I didn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Or I should say, you know, I, and I was, I was grateful for this. My emotions always ran high when I was in a delivery room. I don't do deliveries anymore because I've sort of gone into a totally different subspecialty, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about later on this podcast. But I, you know, in the time that I was an obstetrician, which was right up until about four or five years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, I never got to the point where I was like, oh, this is just another day. Uh, because it's always this huge emotional highs and lows and that the stress, but also the joy and the incredible reward that you're present for this moment in time. It's like one of the biggest moments in the lives of the people in that room, whether it's the person being born or the person giving birth or the family and friends associated with that. So you never get to a place where you're like, oh, I just came to work today. Um, you know, I, I, I was like, wow, I was present at somebody's birthday today or and even maybe played a role in it. When it goes really well, you almost don't even need to be there, right? You're just kind of there to make sure every, nothing's going wrong. But when it when it goes sideways, you're right, it goes really sideways. And then you're just so grateful that you have that knowledge and that training that you can jump in and bring some reassurance and bring some safety or bring even, you know, lack of trauma uh, into those people's lives. So, so no, I, I never got used to it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw out a question on the fly. I just made this one up while I'm talking to you. Okay. So I've always wanted to ask this. So you're a mom. And you have one beautiful child. It's a boy, correct? Yep, little guy. So let me ask you this. Being trained in OB-GYN and being the patient, was it good that you knew all this stuff about OB-GYN? Were you a good patient? Or were you kind of like micromanaging? Like, don't put that forceps near me, man. <laughs> like, like what, can you give me an answer for that? Uh, I, I mean, you, you might have to like get my obstetrician, who is uh, Sarah Petruska at University of Louisville. If you ever want her on this podcast, you can ask her the same question. Was Kate a good patient? Um, I, I was a very good patient in the sense that I said, I don't want to have control over anything. You know, like, I trust uh-huh. you guys. I'm leaving it in your hands. I'm not an obstetrician anymore. And so you guys are up on the latest and the greatest and I I trust you. And just to give you an idea of how much I trusted them, how much I kind of wasn't paying attention, I was just trying to 
take in the birth experience from a patient's side and not uh -huh. be the obstetrician. Uh -huh. um, I had a postpartum hemorrhage, which I didn't even realize. Oh, you know, I I, uh, I had the baby and I was all, you know, wrapped up in the magic of having the child in my arms and my husband there and everything else. And, you know, they went through Cytotec, you know, Hemabate. Uh, they gave me some oxytocin. I, you know, they, they were injecting me with stuff. And, you know, they gave me methogen. And, and I didn't pay any attention to any of that, right? I didn't even wow. know what was going on. It wasn't until somebody said, can I have a Bakri balloon? That I was like, oh, wait, did, did someone say Bakri balloon? Was that for me? Or was that for like the room wait, What is the that for the, for the listeners? What is a Bakri balloon? It doesn't <laughs> sound good. A Bakri balloon is this big um, like water balloon, essentially, that they place in the uterus and then they blow up the balloon to sort of put pressure on the walls of the uterus and literally tamponade oh my God. eating vessels in someone that's having a postpartum hemorrhage. And uh, they usually will go through the medical prostaglandin kind of stuff before they go to a Bakri balloon yeah. because, you know, inserting something in the uterus right after it's been opened and evacuated is, you know, a risk for infection and of other course. things oh and God. trauma. Yeah. So, I, you know, someone said Bakri balloon and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> have, we, have we gotten that far down the postpartum hemorrhage pathway? Oh my God. So I wasn't even paying attention, Raj. I was just like wrapped up in the amazing moment of, of yeah. becoming a mom. And, and it wasn't wow. until someone said Bakri balloon that I was even like, wait, maybe I should start paying attention to what's going on in this room well, from well, a medical I'm standpoint. I, I'm glad you survived. And I, I just got to know before yeah. the next question, it, did you have to go to surgery for that or did it stop? I, I didn't. I was, I, you know, okay. Bakri balloon did its work. Um, Yay, for for those of us listening, a little, a little medical knowledge, right? You know, like you <laughs> give the person the prostol and then you give them oxytocin, you run the pit wide open mm -hmm. and then you maybe give them methogen. And if none of that's working, you know, get, uh, if you don't have a Bakri balloon handy, just get like four or five Foley's, um, mm -hmm. you know, for, yeah. for a urinary catheter and, and stick them all in the uterus and blow them all up, right? That'll work the same because it's like creating many, many little bubbles, create as much pressure as one big bubble. Um, so just a little bit of medical knowledge thrown in for our listeners. Oh, oh, I, I, I love when you do that. So let me let me get into now you're an official attending OB-GYN. What, what made you go into, you know, female pelvic medicine, very specific, and, and of course, reconstructive surgery. So was it just the type A personality that you want another fellowship, some more titles? Can you explain how that your path went that way? Um, I wish I could say it was just my, my type A personality and my desire to do something hard that drove me into FPMRS. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was sort of the uh, magical mix of it's a very, very challenging surgical profession. The surgeries are intricate. They're very fine. They're very, um, you have to have a really high level of skill. And when I would see people operate with that level of skill, I'd say, wow, I really want to get trained to do that. That's, that's cool. And then the other part was the patient piece, uh, the patients in FPMRS, um, female med pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, are getting treated for these really um, sensitive disorders like urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, where the vagina kind of falls out of the vagina, for lack of a more elegant way <laughs> to, to put it. Um, and, you know, it's hard for them to come to you and talk about these things. It's hard for them to live with these things. And when you treat them or make them better, they come to you with a gratitude that's just overwhelming. I tell my students and my learners all the time, 
it's funny because I don't cure cancer, but going in the room with me and talking to my patients after their surgeries, you'd think I had cured their cancer by how grateful they are and how effusive they are about, you know, oh, thank you so much. You've changed my life. I'm just so glad you were here for me. Uh, you know, I I doubt in internal medicine, and I'm, I'm sad to say this, but I doubt in internal medicine, everyone, everyone ever gets that effusive about you lowering their blood pressure. They're like, oh, thank you so much for managing my pulmonary, my pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. I'm just so glad that you got that under control, you know, because people don't have that same sort of uh, effusive gratitude about that kind of stuff, although maybe they should. Um, I think my common, a, yeah. <laughs> I think the common the things I hear is, blood work again are you serious or <laughs> did, did you did you run this by my insurance how much is the copay i think that's the the two things you get most of the time but yeah and what i what i get is <laughs> i finally got to sit through a movie with my husband without having to get up and change my clothes because i was peeing on myself so <laughs> that's that's the kind of stuff that yeah. i get um, oh, that's you know, amazing. So, like you that's say, I, I don't, I don't save lives, but you would think that I was like saving lives every day by, by how much gratitude and appreciation I get from my patients, which is, you know, makes my job fun, right? It's, it's wonderful to go in every day and hear that. So with that being said, I have two broad topics that amazing Dr. Merriweather is going to inform us about, you know, I mean, talk to my audience, like we don't know anything if we don't, you know, we're going to talk about pelvic organ prolapse, and we're going to talk about urinary incontinence, because I think those are going to be really important things. So let me ask you, look at me, I got my notes right here. Nice. Uh, let me ask you in layman's terms, surgeon, that what is, how would you describe pelvic organ prolapse? And can you let me know what is the most organ that tends to prolapse and how do they present? Great. So I treat pelvic organ prolapse, which for women, which is usually the population that's experiencing it, mm -hmm. right? is where um, the vagina falls down or turns inside out such that it's kind of coming to or through the opening of the vagina. So women come to me all the time and say, my bladder's falling out, which is technically correct. Um, but really, it's not the bladder or the rectum that's falling out of their vagina. It's kind of like their vagina is falling out of their vagina. They come in and the vagina walls are turned inside out, kind of like if you reach down into your jeans pocket and grab the bottom of the pocket and then pulled the pocket up out. And so it was turned inside out and the pocket oh was sticking out of your jeans. Yeah. Um, the vagina has the ability, because it's a stretchy and flexible organ meant to accommodate birth and intercourse, mm -hmm. etc., it can bulge and, and fall down, which means that there's all sorts of women in the world that are walking around with this bulge coming out of their vaginal opening. And every woman that comes into my office to some degree says, I had no idea this was such a common problem and that there were tons of women walking around like me with this thing going on. So um, is it is it gradual, Kate, where it's kind of like a little bit, they don't know what it is, they let it go on, or is it all or nothing where it's like, whoa, what happened? Yeah. It's, it's very gradual in almost all cases. So it's, it's time and gravity, you know, wear and tear, mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, a lot of pressure that's very subtle over time sort of gradually makes this fall down. So it's not that you would go to bed one night and then you'd wake up the next morning and all of a sudden there'd be a pear-shaped, you know, mass <laughs> between your legs. It's more uh, that gradually you'd start to feel something sort of pressurizing there, and then you start to feel a little bulge, and then the bulge gets a little bit bigger, and then it's out more frequently, and then it's out in a bigger size, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Most women that come to me have been dealing with it for years or decades. 
Wow. So then let's start off with the age. So I'm not going to put this in my differential for, for you or a 30 year old, you know I mean? I'm putting this in the differential by assume maybe six. <laughs> it could. Yeah, absolutely. So really, so what I treat women all the time. I treat women all the time that are in their thirties and forties that are, just I, I didn't know that. Know this. I wouldn't um, think that. And that's, and that's actually a piece of good news because uh, it's getting out there more that prolapse is a thing. And that that's what that bulge between your legs is. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, you can get care for it and treatment for it. So women are coming in at younger and younger ages and at earlier stages of it, mm -hmm. meaning when it's not so big and it's not so bothersome and getting treatment earlier. So after they've had uh, one or two or three or whatever number of kiddos or they've gone through mm -hmm. only a few decades of life as opposed to being age 70s, 80s, etc., um, they're coming in younger and younger, which I think is a testament to the fact that the medical community has sort of reached out to women and said, this is something we can help you with. Wow. Um, so come in and get treatment for it. Uh, you don't have to wait till you're 70 and it's the size of a melon. <laughs> so let me ask you this. So let's say is a diagnosis based upon your exam. So mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, many I will say if I go down there, I don't know what I'm looking at, you know. Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's easy for you to say this is the vagina inside the vagina, but do you need to get imaging to make the diagnosis? So do you do ultrasound? Do you do CT? I mean, how do you make that diagnosis to make sure exactly what's prolapsing, what organs are prolapsing you know, uh, down? Don't. I don't. I, it's strange to say, but we, we make it completely based on physical exam. And imaging and ultrasound and MRI and all that stuff is all done in the, in the interest of research or like kind of more advanced understanding of the anatomy. But the average woman walking into the average doctor that does what I do, all we have to do is have a speculum and a measuring stick, which tells us centimeters to kind of say, all right, what's coming out and how much? Well, I have a question. That's then. it. So, yeah. Kate, be honest with me. So if you're going to the OR in some of these patients, don't you want imaging so you won't be surprised with the X factor? Like, whoa, I didn't realize that. So have you gone to the OR without imaging and just knowing what's down there and... How do you decide I, what you're going to do? This is going to blow your mind, Raj, but I go to the OR with, without imaging every time I go to the OR. <laughs> but, you're, but you're a superhero. I, I That's what superheroes do. <laughs> no, not at all. All the, all the people in my profession, um, you know, we've managed to create tools for physical exam that make it so that the physical exam is very reliable. To wow. Tell us what we need to know. Yeah. Um, especially to, to operate on pelvic organ prolapse. The most uh, frequent, you know, organs that are on the other side of the vagina when it's bulging down, I should yeah. say, that are on the sort of the other side of the vaginal wall it's falling yeah. are the bladder and the rectum. Mm -hmm. And so we're not really frequently surprised like, oh my gosh, there's liver down there or something. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's just not a thing. Yeah. Um, it's like only the flexible organs that are mobile in the pelvis or are already adjacent to the vagina can sort of be in that bulge. If, okay. you, if you want to think of it that way. So okay. it's not like I'm going to um, go to the OR someday and I'm going to find a spleen in someone's <laughs> prolapse in their vagina. It's, right. it's not, that's not anatomically okay. something we have to worry about. So um, we, we sort of say, all right, it's a vaginal prolapse. Um, but we've tried to, in terminology, kind of get away from labeling what it is that's on the other side of it or what's falling down in that bulge. Okay. Kind of like hernias are called hernias. I see what you're hernias, saying. Right. You don't yeah. necessarily say this is a hernia that has bowel in it. Or, this is a hernia that has momentum in it. Or this is a hernia that has. It's a hernia. It's a vaginal hernia. And 
and what's what decides to come down and fill it is just what's uh, loose and available down in the pelvis. <laughs> well said. So l- let me ask you this. So, you know, in I'm sure surgeons feel the same way as medicine doctors, you know, that you want to do simple things first, lifestyle modifications first in terms of treatment. So I know there's always exceptions to the rule, but for the average woman that comes to you who you make this diagnosis, do you do lifestyle modifications first. And I did some research that there's these Kegel maneuvers that if you could explain those and yeah. a very simple thing is called a, a, a pessary. Yeah. And uh, can you explain both? And are these simple things and what other lifestyle modifications can you do first before you take over as the OR doctor? Gotcha. So in the non-surgical realm, Raj, Raj's research is always spot on, right? You can do um, things to decrease the amount of pressure. So if you're a smoker and you have a chronic cough or you have a COPD that's given you like a lot of coughing and pressure on, on the belly, um, you could quit smoking. You could get your COPD or your asthma treated, anything that decreases sort of coughing and sneezing and, and things like that. If you're uh, overweight or obese, you can lose weight. That decreases how much pressure and gravity is like, working uh, in the pelvic floor region. Um, Kegel muscle exercises are meant to train the levator ani muscles, which are those sort of uh, pairs of muscles that frame the vagina and the other pelvic organs um, to to close and lift and close and lift um, on the vagina. So Kegel muscle exercises that are regularly done are very helpful for women that have earlier stages of prolapse. I mentioned earlier that it's good that women that are younger and in earlier stages of prolapse, not as bulgy, in other words, Mm -hmm. are coming in for treatment because they are in a stage that maybe I can say Kegel muscle exercises might actually still help you where you are. It's not like the horse has been let out of the barn and shut gotcha. the door. It's not going to make a difference. Uh, their, their prolapse is still near or at the vaginal opening and lifting or tightening the vaginal opening, which is what you do when you're contracting and training the levator muscles. That's what Kegel muscle exercises are. So people are listening to this podcast, Kate, are Kegel muscle exercises, you know, uh, is that like squeezing your butt cheeks? I mean, what, what, my, my, yeah, is no, that too question. simple of a put? I mean, how do you no, describe it's, a Kegel uh, muscle It's exercises? the muscles that we use to stop uh, things from coming out of the genital hiatus. So specifically what we, when we're training women to do them, we say, pretend like you're trying to stop your urine from coming out. Not that we want you to actually stop your stream of urine anytime that you're trying to go to the bathroom or anytime you're trying to pass gas, you're trying to keep gas from coming out. But those are the same muscles you contract when you're saying you're in an elevator, you don't want to pass gas, that would be embarrassing. (laughs) Or when you're in a, in the drugstore and you really have to go to the bathroom, but you've got a full shopping cart and you don't want to have to lose your place in line. You're contracting these muscles, trying not to pee or not to pass gas. Those are the same muscles that we train people to contract voluntarily and do exercises with when we're training them to do Kegel muscle. And, and does it work, Kate? If, I mean, do you tell them to do it like, what, 10 times a day? or And does it really... When you're at the Kegel mus- uh, exercise stage, is it kind of like prolonging when surgery is inevitable or there are people who do it and are like, they never require surgery. Yeah, there's absolutely people that uh, that don't require surgery if they do that because it is proven to alleviate symptoms for people that have up to stage two pelvic organ prolapse. And stage two is just a fancy term that says that it's within a centimeter of the vaginal opening inside okay. or outside at its most bulgy. Okay. Um, so when people have prolapse that's kind of come significantly more than a centimeter out of the vaginal opening, tightening the vaginal opening is not going to sort of suck it back in, in other words. Okay. But people that have those earlier stages of prolapse get great benefit out of Kegels. And so I tell people to do them. 
And okay. I even tell people to do them after surgery sometimes just to oh, okay. act as a prevention or a maintenance kind of thing. Hey, lead into the, 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 the pessary and explain that because... Yeah, so pessaries are a cool thing. A lot of my research life and fellowship was dedicated to pessaries because I was doing a <laughs> randomized trial on this special kind of goop <laughs> that, that we give with pessaries for women to put in their vagina. Pessaries are a soft silicone um, instrument. They come in dozens of different shapes and sizes. I tell women that they're as varied as like women's shoes. They come in <laughs> as many different sizes as, as women's shoes do, um, right? They come in rings and, and discs and, and like little diamond ring looking things mm. and um, things that look like pacifiers. I mean, you, you name a shape and a size, they've got that for pessaries. Okay. Um, because they're individually fitted to the vagina to hold up or lift up the, the vaginal wall so that they won't come down and cause the symptoms of bulge or pressure or trouble going to the bathroom that people with prolapse often have. So what women that wear pessaries are sort of like wearing this device in their vagina all the time, or at least during the day when they're doing their everyday upright activities. So question. Um, so is this something yeah. that the woman herself can take in and take out? Or yep. oh really? Yeah, I thought, women I thought with you good put it hand in dexterity. Yeah, oh. good hand dexterity and good finger function. You teach them how to take it out, clean it, and put it back in. And they only have to do that every one or two weeks, Raj. It's it's less work than a house plant. Oh really? <laughs> oh my god! And so it's so, not and, like they're having to do it every day or all the time. So there, if there are people who are diagnosed early, they don't want to have surgery. If they do lifestyle modifications, Kegels, and a pessary, if indicated, they could have a good quality of life and avoid surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. Damn. All right. And so everyone that walks in my door, I offer them all these options. I say lifestyle modifications with or without a pessary or surgery. And if you want to hop right to surgery, you know, good on you. If you're really looking to avoid surgery, there's great other options. So you, you kind of set me up for my next question. So right here, I'm going to ask you surgeries because I mean, you're the surgeon, you know what I mean? But I love that we focus on the non-stuff. So in a very simple way, how would you categorize the types of surgery? And I tried to look it up and it got me really confused. There was obliterative surgery, reconstructive surgery. I mean, I, I, I really need you here. So yeah. for the for the for the um, listener, what are the broad types of surgery you could have and, and say a little about each one? Great. So um, there's more or less three categories of surgery that I offer to people. There's closing the vagina, which Raj just mentioned is something sometimes called an obliterative procedure, which closes the vagina on the inside or makes it very short. I sort of, um, to go back to my pocket analogy, like prolapse is like a pocket turning inside out. This is sewing the pocket shut on the inside, sort of like if you've ever seen a men's sport coat that comes with the pockets sewn shut. That's sort of what the vagina is like after one of these procedures, where we just sew the front and the back walls together so that the vagina can't turn inside out. Now, needless to say, I only offer the closure of the vagina surgeries to women that are no longer using their vagina for insertive sexual intercourse. So if sexual intercourse where something's being inserted in the vagina isn't part of their range of sectivity or sexual expression, or that's just not something that they're interested in anymore, then they could have one of these procedures. And they're very uh, simple to perform. They're just done on the surface of the vagina, right? So mm -hmm. sewing it shut on the inside. Um, the outside of the vagina looks totally normal, so you still okay. go to the bathroom normally. 
And it takes care of the problem forever. It's near 100% resolution, right? Because if something is sewn shut, it can't turn in. <laughs> so would I be wrong by saying, Kate, that this is the, the gold standard of surgery is the most traditional thing that, hey, yeah. this is I'd say it. it's the most definitive. Yeah, most definitive. Well chosen. And would you tend to say you offer this in now in older women? Not to say mm -hmm. older people can't have sex, but you know what right. I mean? Is that... Yeah, so it's okay. it's typically uh, folks that have either are older and uh, that type of sexual expression is no longer part of their life. Gotcha. Um, or there are people who that part of sexual expression was never part of their sexual life. Good point. Okay. Their vaginal yeah. course just wasn't part of their gig from, yeah. from the gym. The uh, other two categories of surgery are both what we call reconstructive. So they both restore the vagina to where it was before. And the reason I sort them into sort of two buckets is because they're different in the way I'm rebuilding the vagina. One of the ways I uh, can rebuild uh, vaginas is that I can go through the vagina and use your own natural ligaments to kind of suspend the top of the vagina. So we all, men and women, have these natural ligaments in our pelvis that kind of suspend things or hold things up. And I'm just reattaching the vagina to those um, okay, with gotcha. sutures. Um, okay. Those those surgeries are called nat natural ligament or native tissue repairs. Um, usually, we use the uterosacral ligament, okay, or the sacrospinous ligament. Those are the two most common ones. You and might and, and I'm getting maybe too detailed here. Are your surgeries when you do that one? Are you instrumenting through the vagina, or are you making yep. cuts in the pelvic? Yeah, we're going through the vagina to get to those ligaments. Do you now? I, I don't know why I'm getting so dorky here. Are, are, do you guys do this robotically, or is it laparoscopically? We're going to get to the laparoscopic and robotic approach uh, when I talk about the last category. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Actually, I'm sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, no, no sorry. No problem. So, <laughs> no, to, to do natural ligament repairs, I can yeah. go through the vagina. I don't necessarily have to go through the belly and use laparoscopy or robot. Okay. I gotcha. could, but, you know, it's not necessary. You can just go right through the vagina, and that's maybe the simplest and safest way to do it. Okay. The problem with native tissue repairs is, of course, native tissue is native tissue. It's still stretchy. It's still subject to gravity. It's not as strong as artificial materials, right? So okay. I always tell women the biggest problem with native tissue repairs, although they're, quote, natural, they don't last very long. Um, okay. So we have is, you know, just after two years after surgery, up to 20% of women are bothered again mm. by a bulge and want to get retreated. It. So this will be um, once again an, an older patient you'll do this for, not a thirty-year-old, because correct. If, yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so could I do it for a younger patient? Yes, but they would have to know that there's a high likelihood that they might need another surgery or another treatment in, okay. in the future. So which brings us to the last category, which is the most aggressive reconstructive sort of surgery, which actually uses artificial tissue or what is referred to as mesh in the lay terminology, um, mm -hmm. which is like polypropylene knitted web of, uh, so it's sort of this uh, stretchy, flexible, lightweight, artificial uh, substance that we put on the front and the back of the vagina and then suspend to the anterior longitudinal ligament coming down the front of the tailbone. Um, okay. So um, the big long word for it is sacrocopal pexy, Sacral for tailbone, <laughs> copo for vagina, and pexy for, you know, you're lifting and attaching them together. And when, when we're doing those surgeries, they're very intricate, right? You have to, like, peel the vagina away from its accompanying organs, the bladder and the rectum, put the mesh uh, on the vagina and attach it. 
attach the mesh to the sacrum where there's a lot of other dangerous things running nearby. So these are intricate and involved surgeries. And fortunately, they've evolved from when they were first done in the 1900s from an open surgery to a minimally invasive surgery. So now they're done laparoscopically through little incisions in the belly, right? Or they're done with the assistance of a robot, which is just laparoscopic surgery on steroids, right? Where you have <laughs> the robotic assistance with wristed hands and, mm-hmm. and, and more magnification and better lighting and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So that's so a question, question, question. So for, for the mesh would be one of the downsides is it's a foreign body. Correct. And, you know, as a medicine doctor, foreign body means set of infection. So is that mm-hmm. one of the main complications? You're like, if you do it naturally, you're not really going to have infection of your own ligaments versus right. I'm putting a mesh in you. And it, have you had the, the, those experiences where, uh-oh, it got infected, and do you take it out or just give antibiotics? Absolutely. So fortunately, um, mesh infection is rare because you're putting it in the belly, which is a sterile space, right? Okay. So you have a lot of control and, and uh, ability to prevent bacteria from getting in there. The problem that you'll run into, though, is if you put it too near the surface of the vagina or the surface that, like, a woman could touch with her finger if she inserted a finger mm. in the then you can have something called exposure where the mesh is exposed in the vagina vault or the, okay. the vagina has mesh coming out into it. So bacteria can seed it mm. and, and then infection is kind of coming from the outside of the woman into the inside of the woman. And definitely I've had one or two experiences uh, in my practice where the mesh gets infected and I have to take it out. I have a question. Yep. What about intercourse? Can you have intercourse? You can. You can have intercourse after either the natural ligament suspension surgeries I talked about, or yep. you can have uh, intercourse after the mesh reconstruction surgery, the sacrocolpeplexy okay. that I talked about. And now I'm assuming when you say intercourse, you're talking about like insertion into the vagina kind of thing. Exactly. Because right. there's a mesh and you said foreign body and it mm-hmm. could get secondary infected. So right. there's no limit or, hey, you mean, hey, you're going to have intercourse, have yeah. intercourse. It's not a, yep. okay. It's just the the six weeks of healing afterwards so that everything can heal in place. And then these women can go back to um, insert of sexual intercourse after that. And let me ask you this. So, you know, because um, I'm a lung doctor and a lot of my good friends over here are CT surgeons. And I always awesome. like, yeah, I put them on the spot to teach me something. I think surgeons teach me so much. They, you know, a big thing is the Da Vinci robot. You know what I mean? Yes. And you know, if your university wants to have a big name, you got to do the Da Vinci robot. So yep. is that you, Kate? Are you controlling this little robot with the hands and doing that type of surgery? Is that what you do? Yeah, I do that all the time. Um, You're I'm amazing. Actually, <laughs> I'm actually on the robotics uh, steering committee uh, for my hospital. And the ro- robotics is a fascinating tool, right, Raj? Because it doesn't improve the surgery from the perspective of the patient. From the perspective of the patient, the surgery is still getting done the same way it would have gotten done if you did it laparoscopically with these long, yeah. straight chopstick instruments. But it's it's like taking the tram up the mountain rather than taking the donkey up the mountain, um, you know, <laughs> from a surgeon's perspective, because the robot allows us easier access, easier visualization, more movement. So was I a laparoscopic surgeon first? Yeah, operating with with straight chapsticks, absolutely. And yeah, I that's how you trained, that right? That's the way yeah, you were trained. That's how I trained, and yeah. it's kind of like you know, 
um, to go up an escalator, you know how have to know how to climb stairs when the <laughs> escalator breaks, right? But the robot has so many advantages for the surgeon mm-hmm. and kind of ergonomics and things like that, that I, you know, I sound like I'm an advertisement for the robot, but although it has no benefits or harms to the patient themselves, mm-hmm. it probably will prolong surgeons operating life by five to 10 years. Oh, if I did absolutely wow. everything that I could do laparoscopically, laparoscopically, I might have my back go out or my oh, you know, shoulders go out or five to 10 years sooner. And I'm, that's not an exaggeration. That's just, just fact about the ergonomics of doing one mode of surgery versus the other. You're a, a patient and your surgeon says they're using robotics. It's not just because they're lazy or because they're not skilled enough to do it laparoscopically. It's probably just because they say this is this is an easier way to do it. And you want your surgeons to have ease. <laughs> and I got to tell you, you know, because I, I, I see my surgeons, they sit there like they're playing this video game. And right. I just now I, I visualize you, Kate. I'm so proud of you. It's just amazing. Like once again, going back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, doing our research. And now that's you operating the Da Vinci robot. I'm so Crazy. proud of you. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. You know, I, I may have to bring you back a second time to do urinary incontinence because I didn't realize I was going to spend so much time on this, but I have more questions about pelvic organ prolapse. So once you, you know, determine what surgery you want, now I'm going to put you on the spot here. Does the surgery work, Kate? Oh, great question. So I and be you know, honest, okay? <laughs> you know, I told you I told you that the answer is not always yes, right? I already sort of showed my hand when I told you how the native tissue surgery fails, you know, mm-hmm. it within two years up to 20% of the time. That's not great, right? Yeah. Um, when you consider that only about two-thirds of people are satisfied after a lap coli, it doesn't look that bad. But when you're considering that the whole point of the surgery is to lift up the vagina and the vagina is gonna fall again. Uh, yeah, that that makes you really leery about that surgery, right? Um, when you get into mesh augmented surgeries like the sacrocopalpexy that I talked about, you get much better results. You go, uh, you know, seven to ten years into the future, and less than ten percent of those patients need treatment again. But it's still not perfect, right? It's yeah, like the only yeah. surgery that I've mentioned that works almost all the dagnum time is yeah. closing the inside of the vagina. And you'd think that we would have a better solution than that by now. Um, so it, our field has a long way to go. Uh, so, you know, like what, you know I want to make sure I mentioned this because, um, you know, I did have a patient and they had uh, some prolapse. And of course, you know, I didn't dive into it because they're here to see me for lungs. You know, who am I to be talking about your vagina there? But they, uh, they end up getting a hysterectomy. And of course, that's important to know their surgical history when you take your initial H&P, uh, history and physical. So why would someone take out the uterus? And can you take that and explain how you are known as the uterus sparing doctor? I want to make sure I hear this. <laughs> one of one of many uterus sparing doctors. Yeah. Um, the uh, as as late as the early two thousands, it was believed that maybe the uterus, just like the weight of it bearing down on the vagina, might cause prolapse. And so people thought, okay, if I take out the dispensable organ that's falling out, maybe there won't be anything falling out anymore. <laughs> um, so for a long time, you know, a lot of uh, gynecologic history. People were doing hysterectomies, just simple hysterectomies for people that had prolapse. 
The problem is, is that the vagina supports still weren't there, right? So you took out the uterus and then the vagina still fell out because there was nothing holding the vagina up. <laughs> um, so, you know, as, as often as the unfortunate case in medicine, we did something for many, many years that didn't work. And eventually we had to examine why is this not working? Um, so we, we discovered, okay, simple hysterectomy is not a treatment for prolapse. And then we start saying, all right, so we need to do what's called an apical vaginal suspension. If we're going to do a hysterectomy, we have to lift up the vagina. We have to okay. suspend it to something. We have to give it some supports because if we just lop off the top, the top of the vagina, the uterus, that's not going to give the vagina any support. In fact, yeah. it interrupts some of the ligaments. That's sure. It. And then in the, you know, the 20 teens, we took it yet a step further and people started saying, wait a minute. If the whole purpose of treating prolapse is to lift the vagina and taking out the uterus doesn't make anything any better or worse, couldn't we just leave the uterus in there and just suspend the uterus and the vagina together? That, I mean, yeah. sometimes, sometimes when we would do those closure surgeries I talked about, Raj, we would just leave the uterus up there, right? We would just yeah. close the vagina and the uterus would just stay in situ. Just, sure. You know? Why take it out? It's it's not going to make a difference. It's whether yeah. or not that vagina reopens, right? So people started to say, hmm, if we could make surgery 30 to 60 minutes shorter and avoid some bleeding or avoid some organ injury by leaving the uterus in, maybe we should examine that. And so um, there was, by the early 20-teens, a pretty good crop of research out there, a big pool of data on whether or not uterine preservation and prolapse surgery was feasible and safe. And I was tasked with doing a systematic review on it, along with other members of the SGS, Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, systematic review group. So 10 to 12 of us from all over the country and the world took on this systematic review. And if any of the listeners out there, if you've ever done a systematic review, First of all, you're crazy because it takes a lot of work. And second of all, way to go because it, it takes a lot of work. Um, and so we did this systematic review and we found that the outcomes weren't significantly worse. Um, there wasn't a clear picture emerging that you have to take the uterus out. It's just not necessary. So all these years we've been doing this unneeded surgery for women when they have a prolapse problem. Now, Kate, I do I still you. offer you, people to have a hysterectomy at the same time? Sure, but I don't need to. That's, this that's, is, this that's is huge. Deal. And I don't yeah. think anyone listening could appreciate this because, you know, if you asked me, you know, hey, Raj, what is the treatment for, you know, um, you know, pelvic organ prolapse? I would have said hysterectomy because that's what we see. That's what we hear. That's in the review books. Yep. And it just blows my mind. What you just said is that you take out the uterus, but the vagina is still going to prolapse. It's still there, but right. instead connected to the uterus simply, and you're going to save, it's a really big surgery to take out your uterus. I mean, this is huge. Like, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm so excited about yeah. uterus and vagina. I mean, this is mind blowing. You know, also for our listeners out there that are maybe researchers and have struggled with the issue of like rejection, right? You put all this work into a paper and then it got rejected or the journal that you really wanted to go for it and publish it. You know, this was so controversial when we that several high high end journals in the OBGYN world did not want to publish it because it was so no way. it was so uh, unaccepted by the by the community that that not doing hysterectomy at the time of prolapse surgery. That was just like I can imagine. Blasphemy. You know, That's what we do. We do hysterectomy. 
because you're stepping on the toes for some of your your forefathers who've done so many amazing things and and god bless them but and i I, you know i i'm not i wasn't trying to be blasphemous i was just sort of like my me and my team right we were reporting on what the data said um but that was but the the implications for the field and how that would change practice were such that a lot of people were like, we don't want to like this paper for many, many reasons. Um, I'm so, no, I'm really proud of you because I think that if you, it's not just what you do for yourself, but if you could change the Titanic in any way where less women are getting this big surgery, less women are taking their uterus out, you're doing minimally invasive things. You could definitely sleep at night and feel good about yourself. And I think that's, that's a great thing to have on your resume. You yeah, know what I mean? It's it's awesome. And I, I think the tide is turning. Like, you know, so many things in medicine, you know, you have a small motivated group that follows the data and they stick to their guns and they say the data supports that this is the safest or the best thing to do. And sooner or later, it enters mainstream practice where, you know, I, I'm, I know there's a day coming in not too distant future where good surgeons that read literature will say to patients, now I'm going to do this surgery for your prolapse. Would you like to keep your uterus or do you want me to take it out? And if you want me to take it out, why? Why gotcha. do you want me to take it out? You know, it, what's, yeah. what's the reason? What's the, what am I going to put down as the indication for me taking it out? So let, um, let me kind of, let, let me ask you this as we're, as we're closing up. So what of all the different things, God, I learned so much today uh, for your surgery, your surgery, which is probably the most common one you perform. Mm-hmm. And can you kind of tell me what are the things you tell your patients after the surgery? What can they expect, like recovery time and stuff like that and complications? So for prolapse, the most common one I perform is uh, the sacrocopal pexy, which I mentioned to you is the most yeah. durable, reconstructive one where you okay. can still have insertive sexual intercourse afterwards. Yeah. So my my sort of younger and active or sexually active patients choose that surgery more because they say, oh, I want the Cadillac. I want the one that's going to last the longest and sort of mm-hmm. the vagina to where it once was. And usually those, because they're minimally invasive, they're walkie-talkie surgeries. And what I mean by that, Rod, yeah. is they can eat, they can walk, they can shower, they can do all their around-the-house activities right away after those surgeries. So they're not, you know, wow. find a bed or they can't lift a toothbrush or something of that na- that nature. I, I always paint this picture for them. And I say, you know, you're think about it as you just gave birth, right? You still have to get up, you still have to feed the baby, you still have to, you know, eat, you still have to shower, you still have to do all this stuff. You're just tired and sore, right? <laughs> and doing all that. But you can still do it. It's not going to harm anything. The body is, is you know, able to, to have you do your regular activities. And that's in contrast to what used to be just, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we were putting women in the hospital for three days with a big open incision to do these same surgeries. So we've come a long way. No, so you read my mind. So do you admit them after the surgery for overnight observation or are they going home right off the bat or what's going on? I I admit them for one night, but there are many surgeons throughout the country that are doing same day discharge now. Um, What with the ARIS, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Protocols, that are emerging and becoming more popular throughout the nation, there's definitely a move to get these people recovered as soon as possible and maybe even get them discharged the same day. So I would bet you that the climate will shift even further toward you know, we have the same podcast 10 years from now and I'll say, oh yeah, I send them all home. <laughs> That'll and, probably be what happens. And the last question for Dr. Merriweather and what what, what is going to be the, the major risk of the surgery that you're mentioning? Is it pain? Is it infection? What, what, what do you worry about the most that you tell your patients? 
the the thing that I most frequently tell them is like the the number one complication is a run of the mill urinary tract infection. That's oh. far and away the most common thing. I didn't see that bothers people, and <laughs> and that and that you know is the bugaboo that brings people back. And they manifest a whole bunch of different ways, right? Some people can't pee. Some people are peeing too much. Some people are have are pain in the bladder. Some people have blood in the urine. You know. You name it, but it, you know that's far and away the most complicated, the most common complication after these surgeries. More serious things like an infection or a bowel injury, or you need you need to take the mesh out because of pain. Those things are rare; they're all very rare. Um, and I I can tell you, oh, maybe once, maybe twice in my whole career, I've seen those sorts of things. But UTI, it's like a daily. You know, I operate on six to eight patients a week. One of them is going to get a UTI. Okay. Um, wow. Even even though we do everything, you know, by the book. Yeah. So. Well, you know, okay, I got. To, I'm not surprised. We we went for more than an hour already, and I didn't get to cover everything I wanted to. So this is purposeful because number one, uh, would you be nice enough, maybe down the line, to come back and and talk about urinary incontinence with me, just like this? Yeah. Great fun. Okay. I, talk I like about that. people peeing themselves. That is that is my. <laughs> That is my favorite Friday afternoon activity right there. And it's funny, you did warn me before the podcast. You said, hey, Raj, there's going to be a lot of vagina in this episode. I, so. I, I did say you, I was going to say you, vagina you, about 25 times. So I, I, if, any, yeah, if anyone wants a good drinking game, <laughs> if you're looking for a good drinking game out in the audience, you know, like get, line up your shot glasses every time Kate or Raj says vagina on this podcast. <laughs> take, a, take a shot. But I, I got to tell you that, uh, you know, you definitely live up to the hype, Kate. And, you know, we always talk when it's about, hey, let's write this book together, do research. You know, I never really got to hear you lecture. And uh, I am very impressed. And I think that, you know, the way you describe things, I'm just I'm just so proud of you. I just want you to know that. It's been um, a real honor to know you. And, <laughs> and I, when I, whenever I talk about the pilot light theory, I, I always mention you. And put your Twitter handle up. So <laughs> and speaking of, of when I mention you, social media stuff and whatever. If you know my listeners want to know about more about pelvic organ surgery or who you are, is there any way they could find you? Do you want to say it right now on the the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a, a big fan of Twitter. So if you if you want to to tweet at me, uh, it's at Kate K A T E Merriweather M E R I W E T H E R one. So at Kate Merriweather one. Um, on Twitter, I'd, I'd be happy to take your tweets. I love, I love Twitter. It's like the world's biggest backyard fence that everyone's gossiping over, right? So have at it. All right. Well, anyways, that was another episode of the Dr. Raj podcast, and I will see you again in a few weeks. Thanks again, Dr. Mayweather, for being here. Thanks. It was great. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. <laughs>